able to recall the last time you were really angry? Maybe some of you are even able to recall the angriest moment of your life. I don't know if I could do that. But some of you may have a moment in your life where you are just, I'm not sure that I've ever been angrier than when this happened. Anger is a difficult emotion to feel. And contrary to many portrayals of Jesus, where he basically just sort of floats around without a care in the world, we, and, and oftentimes presented really as a man with really no personality at all. Uh, we know that the historical Jesus experienced anger. This can be difficult for us to imagine because we tend to associate anger always with sin. And for us, it oftentimes is sin. Uh, oftentimes our anger is sinful. But there is such a thing in Scripture as what we call a righteous indignation. There is a holy anger that a person can feel. As a matter of fact, I'll take it one step further. I will declare that in a fallen and sinful world, there are things which should make holy men and holy women of God angry. It could be a sin to not feel anger in certain times. And today our text in John allows us to explore this. It allows us to explore this picture of Jesus so often ignored, the angry Jesus. As we're going to see, Jesus has to make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which every Jew living outside of Jerusalem had to do every year for the high holiday of the Jewish system, the Passover. And as Jesus and his disciples head up to Jerusalem for the Passover, he is unpleasantly surprised by a great sacrilege. The holy temple of God has been turned into a marketplace. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 2 and look with me at verses 13 through 22. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. Thus saith the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Well, you're probably aware that traveling used to be much more difficult in the world than it is for us today. Without cars and planes and trains, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for most people would have been a long, arduous, expensive trip. The last thing you would want to do was try and take an animal along the way. However, 
Every family needed to bring an animal because in order to properly worship the Passover, every animal or every family had to have an animal to sacrifice for the Passover meal. And so we have this problem, and so it became a helpful custom for Israelites to purchase the sacrificial animals once they got to Jerusalem rather than take it along the way. But there was another additional struggle for Israelites trying to worship uh, at the Passover because there was a temple tax that every person had to pay in order to use the temple. But the problem was that the Roman government at the time forced people to pay this temple tax with a very specific kind of Roman currency, one that very few of the Jews carried. So not only did they need to have a sacrifice ready in order to worship, they had to have a currency exchange. They would have to exchange their money so that they could have the proper money to pay their temple tax with. And this usually came with a little bit of interest too. And by a little bit, I mean a lot of interest as well. And so while these things were practiced in different locations for a long time, according to our text today, at some point in time, someone had the bright idea to just move them into the temple. Just move them into the temple. And by in the temple, what we're talking about is the outer courts of the temple. So the temple was designed, God instructed in the Old Testament how to build the temple. And the way the temple was designed was it had layers of holiness. There was the Holy of Holies and then an inner sanctuary. And then the last part of the temple, the outside part, was called the outer courts. And it was this big courtyard system that circled the temple. And this was the place that God ordained for Gentiles who had converted to Judaism to worship. So at at this time in the Old Covenant, Jews and Gentiles were separate and they were not allowed to worship together. And this is something that Christ abolished in the New Covenant, which is why the wall has been destroyed and we don't have to to do that anymore. Uh, But at this time, Jews and Gentiles were separated from worship. And so the outer courts was where the Gentiles would worship and then the Jews would go into the inner sanctuaries. And so this outer court, which has been designated, if you will, for Gentile worship, has become a marketplace It has become the place where you buy your sacrificial animal and where you exchange your money. And this is what provokes within Jesus what we've been calling a righteous indignation. And so in true prophetic fashion, he does the exact opposite of what the vast majority of Americans would imagine Jesus would do in a situation like this. Jesus does not behave in this moment the way the Jesus that most of us have made up in our heads behaves. Jesus does something about it. He flips the tables over. He dumps the money on the ground. He drives the cattle out. And he kicks everybody out. He forcibly, aggressively cleanses the temple of this disgusting defilement. Now, let's not do Jesus the disservice, however, that many famous paintings of this event have done to him. There is no doubt, and I'm not trying to hide or sugarcoat anything, Jesus was absolutely being forceful, aggressive, you could even say intimidating in this moment. So I'm not shying away from that. But he was not being cruel, nor was he being violent. He is oftentimes depicted, I've seen paintings of Jesus holding a guy by the shirt with a whip over his hand. Um, Jesus was not being violent. When you see in this text that he made a cord of whips, it is ahistorical, it is wrong for you to think of an Indiana Jones whip. Okay? This was not a big, long whip that we used to use for chastising criminals. As a matter of fact, this would have been a very small, handheld whip with a lot of little frays on the end. 
And you want to know what this cord of whip was used for in the ancient world? Cattle. I don't know how many of you have worked with animals, but large animals typically need something a little bit more. Their hide is too thick. They're too big and strong. You can't sometimes just slap them with your hand. Sometimes they have to get up and go and you need a whip or a spur or something else to make a move. The whip was not for people, <laughs> okay? Jesus was not whipping people. He did not start a bar fight. He did not start a brawl. He used the whip for the cattle. But nonetheless, back to the point, he, he, he drove everyone out of the temple. This is what we call his purification of the temple. He drove out the impurity. He was very angry. He was very forceful and aggressive. And the text makes sure to tell us exactly why. Why is Jesus so bothered by the marketplace in the Gentile courts? Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is so angry because the selling of the sacrifices and the changing of the money is taking place in God's house. And Jesus has zeal for God's house. Right? What is zeal? What does it mean to be zealous? Zeal is an enthusiastic passion and devotion to something. Jesus has so much passion and devotion for the house of God. He has so much zeal that he goes on to say it has consumed him. If, if your Bible translates this more literally than the ESV does, it will say that zeal has eaten him up. He has been eaten up by zeal. He has been completely consumed and overtaken by zeal for God's house. And as a matter of fact, his zeal is so obvious and apparent that when the disciples see him manifest his zeal, they immediately think of an Old Testament passage from Psalm chapter 69. They immediately remember in Psalm 69, which was written by David, and what David is doing in Psalm 69 is he is lamenting that so many, even of his own people, were standing against him and insulting him and attacking him because he was so zealous for the house of the Lord. In other words, David had so much zeal. He took his religion so seriously that it caused even the people who professed to believe in the same religion to despise him. And the fact remains, I, I'm willing to bet that most of you in this room can relate to this. Zeal for religion is despised by those who don't have it. That's why, by the way, the word zealot which is just a description of a person who has a lot of religious zeal, a zealot, is always used in our culture as an insult. If someone calls you a zealot, they're not trying to compliment you. You're a radical, cultist zealot. You take your religion way too seriously. Because here's the thing you need to keep in mind. You might think that people in this culture hate Christianity. That's not true at all. Our culture doesn't care what you believe, and neither did the Romans. They don't hate your Christianity. They don't care about what you believe just as long as you just don't take it that seriously. You can believe whatever you want, it's just, it's just don't take it too seriously. And then they have no problem with what you believe. But the more seriously you take your religion, the more consistently you practice it, the more passionately you practice it, then they're going to have an issue. They're going to hate you. That's what happened to David and that's certainly what's what happened to Jesus. Jesus took his religion so seriously it got him killed. Jesus was not interested in nominal, unserious religion. 
Jesus was interested in true, passionate, consistent, pure religion. And so because of that, even though the rest of the Jewish world, we have no evidence that anyone else was complaining about what was happening here. Everyone's fine. Everyone's happy. Everyone's made peace with this decision, but Jesus is so zealous and he takes his religion so seriously, he's willing to stand alone. And he's willing to be the one person who says, this will not happen under my watch. And he drives out the impurity out of his zeal for God's house. It's important for us, before we can even begin to apply this, to understand that why the word house is being used here. The word house is oftentimes used in the Bible as a metaphor for the place where God dwells and where his people gather to worship him. Right? It makes sense. If you're a father, you live in a home and your family lives there with you. So wherever God's presence is, where his people come together, where his family comes together is called the house of God. And so that's why the temple was also referred to as the house of God. And that's why in the New Testament, the Christian church is still regularly referred to as the house of God. Let me just show you a couple examples. You don't have to turn there. I'll have them on the screen. First Timothy 3, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So here, the household of God is explicitly defined as the church. But I also love Ephesians 2 because it brings in the temple imagery as well. Paul writes in Ephesians, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right? There's so much there, but you get the picture. The church is being metaphorically described as a temple, as a house, as a building. And the reason it can be called a temple is because God's Spirit dwells in there. So the house of the God in the Old Testament was the temple. In the New Testament, it is the church. We come into the house of God to worship. However, we need to further add something to this. When Jesus talks about his zeal for the house of God, he's using what us uh, boring old English teachers refer to as a metonymy. A metonymy. What is a metonymy? If you can remember grade school, if you could remember figures of speech, a metonymy is a figure of speech in which a word, or sometimes even a phrase, is substituted for something else because it's so closely associated with it. Now, that might not make sense to you, but I think an example will really help. We use metonymy when we say things like the White House issued a statement. Right? The White House doesn't technically issue statements. It's a building. It's wood. It can't write. It can't speak. It's a house. It can't issue a statement. But no one thinks twice when we say the White House issued a statement. Because the White House, which is the physical building where the president operates, because of that relationship, we can just speak of the White House as representing the operations of the president. So we just intuitively know when the White House issues a statement, what does that mean? It means the president living in the White House and his team issued a statement. The White House just takes the place of the president. When Jesus is speaking about zeal for God's house, he's speaking in a metonymy. In other words, he's not zealous for the brick and mortar. It's not the stones of the temple he's talking about. It's not the organic, physical stuff. When Jesus is zealous for God's house, what that means is that he is zealous for worship. 
God's house was built and consecrated as a place of worship. He's not concerned with the building. He's concerned with what's supposed to take place in the building. Jesus is zealous for the right worship of God. That's the error that provokes Jesus to so much anger. It's not so much about what is taking place as where it's taking place that Jesus is concerned with. Right? Because here's the thing. Jesus has no problem with selling cattle. You can sell cattle. That's not a problem. Jesus has no problem with exchanging currency. These are not bad things. But Jesus is rightly angered because these things are being done in place of the worship. They're being done in the place that was sanctified, not for selling, not for currency exchange, but for the holy worship of a holy God. And therefore, they are disrupting and distorting the holy worship of a holy God. And so that's really what leads us to the lesson of this passage. Like, what should you take away from the sermon text today? What's the lesson God wanted you to learn in church today? It's this, that we must be zealous for the pure worship of God. We need to be zealous, religious zealots, when it comes to the pure and right worship of God. Right? Because obviously this text is trying to present Jesus as an example to us, as he always is. Jesus is always our example. We are trying to learn from Jesus in this passage. And Jesus is showing us it is good and it is right to be zealous for pure worship. However, we do need to make a qualification here. Because yes, we are supposed to learn from Jesus' zeal. But I submit to you the text does not give us permission to learn from Jesus' example. We are not called to model his reaction. In other words, what I'm saying is that you do not have the authority... To go around to all the churches in Roswell where you think the right worship of God has been defiled and start vandalizing the building, burning it down, and kicking everyone out of the church, okay? So if you thought you were hearing me say that, let me just cut you off at the pass. Um, Please don't ever come into this church and flip the tables over and destroy the piano and kick us all out, okay? You don't have the authority to do that. You might say, well, how? I'm supposed to be a follower of Christ. Like, what would Jesus do? I used to have that bracelet, right? Isn't that what Jesus would do? Well, I think the text is implying that while we should learn from his zeal, we don't have the authority to necessarily behave the way Jesus behaved. And I think we get that in verses 18 through 22. Let's read those again. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So everybody recognized what Jesus did was a little unorthodox here. This is a little radical, I think we can say. Uh, No one would have the audacity to do something like this unless they felt like they had some kind of very special, very high authority. And Jesus affirms that. Jesus is affirming that. The Jews are asking him, whose authority, who gave you permission to vandalize our stuff and to come here and disrupt what we've been doing for so long? And notice, Jesus' response is not, I don't need authority. Any, any Christian zealous for the right worship of God can come in here and destroy your stuff. Jesus does not rebuke them. 
So I think they're right in saying that you need a special kind of authority to do the things that you've just done. Jesus is not rejecting that. He believes he has the authority. He believes I am an authority over this temple. I am an authority over worship. I do have the authority to do these things. And when they ask, well, what's your sign? Prove that you have the authority. He tells them TBD. Hold on. He could have just pulled out some miracle like we saw last week, turning water into wine. But he wants to point them to the definitive miracle. The chief miracle of the entire New Testament. The primary miracle that God always turns to to validate and vindicate Jesus' authority. That his resurrection from the dead. You say, when I come back from the dead, then you will know I had every last bit of authority to do what I just did. He's going to provide proof of his authority. And, and, and keep in mind, Jesus' resurrection is altogether different from the very few resurrections that happened before his. He's not the only person to come back from the dead, uh, right? We're going to see later on in our sermon series of John that Lazarus comes back from the dead. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that after Jesus died, some of the Old Testament saints rose from the dead. Why is raising from the dead so significant? Why don't we worship Lazarus? There's two reasons implied in this text. The first reason is that Jesus' resurrection was the only one prophesied and predicted. And not just by himself. Verse 22 says Jesus predicted himself, saying, I will raise the, the body of my temple. When you destroy it, I will raise it in three days. When it happened, the disciples believed his word. So he predicted it. Lazarus didn't predict it. But not just that. What else did they believe? Verse 22. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Jesus' resurrection has been predicted by God for generations. It was predicted by Jesus, and then he did it. That's way different than Lazarus just coming back from the dead, not even knowing how or why it happened. But importantly, what also makes Jesus' resurrection so amazing is notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus brought himself back from the dead. Lazarus didn't do that. Jesus raised himself by the divine power within him that is shared by all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus' own divine, shared, Trinitarian power raised himself from the dead. He built back his own temple up. This is a different kind of resurrection than people are used to seeing, and they're not even used to seeing and that is why the scriptures regularly and always point us to, if you need to be reminded that Jesus is worth following, you need to be reminded of this. He rose himself from the dead. But here's what I love about Jesus. He never misses an opportunity to teach. Jesus never passes over a good opportunity to teach. He doesn't just point them to his resurrection. But he, he takes them even deeper into why his resurrection proves he has authority over this temple because he doesn't, he, he sort of ambiguously calls himself the temple and that's why they get confused. They think he's talking about building the physical temple up. But he's actually talking about the temple of his body. Why did Jesus do that? Right? Why would he sort of do something that's so easily to confuse? Because Jesus is trying to teach them that his resurrection proves his authority over the temple because his resurrection proves that he is the temple. We tend to think of Jesus as only being the fulfillment of the things that took place within the temple. Right? There was a high priest. 
that offered a sacrifice on an altar. And that's all been filled because Jesus is the high priest and he offered himself on the altar of the cross, right? So he's fulfilled all things. Jesus doesn't just fulfill what happens in the temple. He's showing us here, he fulfills the temple itself. He is the temple. Jesus is now in the new covenant, the place where the presence of God dwells. And if anyone in the world wants to worship God, they have to make a pilgrimage to the temple to do it. You want to worship God? Guess where you got to go to? Jesus. You're not worshiping God outside of Christ. He's the temple. He's where you go to worship God. He's where the presence of God dwells. Jesus is trying to subtly teach them that he is the new and greater temple. And how do we know that he's the new and greater temple? Well, because this temple that they're talking about right here, it got destroyed once before. It's taken over 46 years for other people to build it. Jesus got destroyed, and it only took him three days to build it himself. And then guess what happened in human history in 70 AD? The temple got destroyed again. And guess when it was rebuilt? It wasn't. And you know what I say? Glory to God. Because we don't need it. We have a better temple which rebuilt himself in three days who exists in heaven for you right now. So I still believe the Bible. You need to worship in and through the temple. You cannot approach God through the temple, but we have a better one. We have one that can't be destroyed again. We have one that doesn't take 46 years to build. We have the new and greater temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the temple, and that's why he has the authority to go into the old temple and cleanse it. He's the temple. He's the Lord of worship. He's the Lord of all. That's what his resurrection proves. And so what this means is that, yes, Jesus as the Son of God, as the fulfillment of the old covenant, as the one who rose from the dead, yes, he does have an authority sometimes to do things that we are not allowed to do. So until you predict your own death and resurrection and then come back from the dead, I'm sorry, you don't have the authority to go to other churches and vandalize them and kick everybody out, okay? You're not the Lord of worship. You're not the Lord of the church. So you need to obey your governing authorities. But that does raise a question for us then. Okay, so I'm supposed to be zealous for the pure worship of God like Jesus, but I'm not the one who resurrected from the dead. I'm not the Lord of the church, so I don't get to go around and do whatever I want. So how do I manifest my zeal for pure worship? If it doesn't look like making a whip and driving out impurities, what do I do to show the world and to show God that I have a zeal which has consumed me for the house of God? Well, I think that we can spend the rest of our time looking at a few reasons. I think we can imply from the text a few things that, that serve as a means for us to show and to manifest a zeal for pure worship. In other words, if we are consumed for pure worship the way Jesus is consumed for it, what will that look like for us? And I want to give you three different ways. The first one is that we will maintain reverent worship. We will maintain reverent worship. I, as I see it, the most obvious problem with moving a marketplace into the place of worship is that it's, to put it simply, it's irreverent. Worship is a sacred act because the God we're worshiping is holy. And so therefore, we must perform sacred acts. The fact remains that there are some things which might be good in and of themselves, but they do not belong in the place of worship. They're not sacred. They're not bad, but they're not sacred. Jesus one time used the metaphor of casting pearls before swine. 
It's the same logic here. There's nothing unholy about pigs. There's nothing unholy about pearls. They're both good in and of themselves, but they don't belong together. One is worthwhile and sacred and expensive, and the other one is dirty and gross. They don't belong together. There are things that are irreverent and they don't belong in the worship space. And honestly, I think this might be the most pressing message for the American church today, if I can be blunt. If I had to describe, and I'm not saying, I have to clarify all this. I'm going to do some criticisms here. I do not believe that myself or our church is above criticism. I know we have weaknesses too, okay? So please don't hear me trying to be holier than thou. But we have to look at some things objectively. We have to be able to speak the truth even if we're not perfect, right? And as I sort of look at the evangelical world in our country around us, if I had to describe it in one word, I would call it irreverent. The church has become so attractional and it has valued convenience and comfort above all things that it has turned the Christian church into an irreverent space. All right, we have pastors ziplining onto stages or riding motorcycles up onto stages wearing casual designer clothing. Churches look more like a secular concert or some kind of secular comedy space than they look like a worship space. Many churches look more like a shopping mall with a speaking venue than they look like a sacred place of worship. If I may, the church has simply become silly. And the problem with all of this is that it gets in the place of reverence. It tries so hard to communicate to the world that church is fun and church is cool that we have lost the communication that church is sacred. There's no room left for sacredness in all of our silliness and all of our irreverence. Our God is holy. And we want the world to believe that when we enter this space, we are standing in the presence of a holy God. And so we must be zealous to worship in such a way that people... No, we stand on holy ground when we enter God's house. God's house, in other words, is not a place for cattle or currency exchanges, nor is it a place for motorcycles and t-shirt cannons. Now, I want to clarify, it is possible to take our zeal for reverence too far. So please don't hear me saying that church should be stale, cold, and lifeless. There is space within reverence for joy and other emotions. These things are not contradictory, right? And I, I love the way that Psalm 2 says it. The Psalms tell us to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is a place for joy and for fear in the presence of God, for service and reverence. This is what pure worship is aiming at. So yes, please, I hope you feel emotional in church. There's nothing wrong with being moved by the Spirit in a song or in the worship, uh, in the sermon or in in the Lord's Supper. There is a place for passion and joy and, and, and gladness and sometimes even conviction and guilt. You should feel emotions in church, so please don't hear me saying that. But our emotions need to be tempered. They need to be walled off. They cannot eventually lead us into irreverence. We must desire a reverent kind of worship. But I also maintain a second thing that we can learn from this marketplace in the Gentile courts. In order for us to have truly reverent worship, it means that we're going to have to have orderly worship. Orderly worship goes with 
reverence, right? Because another problem with the Gentile courts being filled with the market is that the place of worship is now disorderly. People are running around, making noise, bargaining deals. The cattle are making noise. and It's just hectic. How could you worship in a space like that? Imagine trying to pray. Imagine trying to meditate on the word of God when there's animals and noises and bargains going on around you. We don't want a hectic work, worship space. We don't want a chaotic worship space. God loves orderly, focused worship. And I think that this is a relevant message for many churches as well today. Today there are churches all over the world who abuse the glory, the glorious truth of being filled with the Spirit. They abuse that as an excuse to host worship services that are disorderly chaos. There are churches today that truly have about as much orderliness as a first century Jewish market. They pretend that it's spiritual worship, that it's led by the Spirit, but it's disorderly and ecstatic. Pure worship place should never look like the market. And this is exactly, by the way, what the Apostle Paul says when addressing a church who was abusing these spiritual gifts. Saying in 1 Corinthians, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three. And each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And then he eventually ends the paragraph by saying, but all things should be done decently and in order. How many churches that are so excited about the spiritual gifts obey this? One by one, no more than three. And if there's no interpreted, none of it at all. And let other people hear and meditate upon what's being said. Orderly, decent, focused, not chaotic, not a marketplace. In order for us to be zealous for reverent worship, we need to be zealous for orderly worship. But there's one more principle I want us to get to that I think we can imply from the text. We must also be zealous to maintain obedient worship. Reverent worship, orderly worship, and obedient worship. The Jewish people, in my opinion, went off track way before they ever physically moved the cattle and the tables into the marketplace. They went off track the moment they had this idea, but then failed to consult the Word of God about it. Having first asked the question, does God tell us to do this in his house? That would have solved all their problems. The fact remains, I don't know if, how long it's been since you've read the Old Testament, how long it's been since you've read the first five books of Moses, but God was pretty darn clear about how to build the temple, exactly the proportions, exactly the measurements, and exactly what is to be done in the temple, down to what is to be worn, where it's to take place. God was pretty crystal, crystal clear about what the temple was for and what was to be done in it. All they had to do was ask the question, does the Bible command us or teach us to do this? They went off track, in other words, when they tried to outsmart God. They thought they knew better than God. They thought their ingenuity on how to best utilize this massive space, because at this time there probably wasn't a lot of Gentile. It's not like this thing was packed with Gentiles. There's a lot of wasted space here. Let's be pragmatic about this thing. Let's utilize this bad boy. 
They thought they were more clever than God. We know how we can use this space better than God does. But they did not have permission from God's word to turn the outer courts into a market. But apparently, they never even cared to consult him. Because here's the thing. We can certainly, we don't have to like imagine that these are just these, the most wicked, evil people who are just intentionally trying to, we're just going to just defile this temple. I think in all honesty, their intentions were probably pretty pure. This decision was most likely extremely convenient for the vast majority of people involved, right? Every single person who was going up to Jerusalem was going, to, they had to go to the temple at some point in time anyway. So the decision to move the tables and the stables into the temple itself is no doubt a very pragmatic decision that made life convenient for almost everyone. They're already on this big, long trip with their family. The last thing they want to do is go up to that hill and cross that river. That's where you can buy your animal and then go over to that hill and cross that river. And then that's where you can do your, your, your tax exchange and then come back to the temple. That's not easy. Just put it in the temple. <laughs> Just make life easy for everybody. This was a blessing. This was a service to the Jewish people. The problem is that experience has showed us, and by, the Bible certainly testifies, that there are few things that will more quickly lead us to defile the worship of God like convenience. Pragmatism has its place, but uncontrolled, it is a poison to pure worship. If we're going to be zealous for pure worship, we are never going to allow convenience and pragmatism to come before consulting the Word of God. What we do in worship, what we use this worship space for, is not to be determined by us, but by God, by Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the temple. We must consult God's word and ask him what he would have us do. We must seek his face in how to use our building. Pure worship is obedient worship. Pure worship seeks the wisdom and the commands of God for determining how to worship. 